you'll turn your Bibles to Daniel, Daniel chapter, end of 6 into chapter 7, verse 1. This morning I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to the next section of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, and I want us to think about these chapters in a little bit of a a holistic context. I'm going to read the end of chapter 6, verse 28. And then into a little bit of chapter 7. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much, eat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up 
to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men everywhere of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 7, we recognize a noticeable change in context. We just finished reading of Daniel's success in the reign of Cyrus, and then it turns back to Belshazzar. He was first mentioned in chapter 5. So what is taking place? There is a transition happening in chapter 7 from historical narrative to apocalyptic writing. And to some degree, if that bothers us, I, I understand. Um, many of you know that prophecy in the sense of uh, the book of Revelation and portions of Daniel, these prophecies have been very somewhat confusing to people over the, the years. And for some, unfortunately, they've become entertainment. And in some ways, at times, we get a little bit little bit concerned about the language. I just read about beasts, lions with wings, leopards with wings, having more heads than one, uh, some terrifying, awful beast that has horns, and then other horns come out of it. Um, these ideas kind of conjure up a mentality sometimes of uh, the fanciful, and people get taken away into some places that are not helpful and not good. In other places, sometimes we as believers get a little bit confused and we struggle with the language and we say, I just don't want to deal with any of it. It's just a plain problem and I don't know how to deal with it and I don't want to deal with it. Well, I can understand the feeling of not wanting to deal with it because sometimes I don't want to either. Because the language can be quite confusing as you move not only from the prophecy of Daniel into the prophecy of Revelation. But there's a reminder for us about the importance of all of God's word not just the portions we think we can understand, but the importance of all of his word, even the portions we may struggle with. I was reminded of this through an illustration from Dale Ralph Davis. I don't normally give you lengthy quotes like this, but um, I thought this was a really good illustration. Now, ladies, let me go ahead and tell you, you can use this in the reverse as well, okay? Davis says, if before marriage you, as males, imagine you have begun to understand the female, you are incredibly naive. If after marriage you, as males, think you can divine the female, you are clearly deluded. If after years of happily married life you dream that at last you can fathom the female persona, you are utterly hopeless. And yet, and yet, he says, none of that kept you from marriage. None of it kept you from marriage. He says, neither should the mysteries of Daniel 7 through 12 keep you from plowing on through this book of Daniel. It's a pretty good illustration, I thought. Some things are concerning to us. Some things we really don't understand. Sometimes we think we understand things we don't. But that doesn't keep us from doing the good things, even continuing on in the book of Daniel. 
So as we continue on, we want to recognize the importance of this transition that we see between verse 28 of chapter 6 and verse 1 of chapter 7. Recognize that this transition is not disconnected. Nebuchadnezzar, way back in the early chapters of Daniel, could only understand the interpretation of his dream in a personal context. His humanness and unregenerate state at the time of the vision could not process the future decree and ordering by God's kingdom. He could not even process his own kingdom, much less the future kingdom. Because what was given to him was information about his kingdom and what would happen, but there was also information given to him about a future kingdom, an eternal kingdom. He had trouble enough processing the present kingdom of his own because out of it, what did he decide to do? He got a vision of an image, one that was telling him his kingdom would, would be done away, and so then he goes and he makes a completely different image, doesn't he? Belshazzar, on the other hand, certainly could not have recognized the context and sense of what the Almighty God was doing and what he would do in the future. Even though Nebuchadnezzar comes to a realization of who God is in some sense, he did not fully fathom what God was doing, and Belshazzar was completely rebellious. He certainly didn't fathom what God was doing, even though through Daniel, God was speaking directly to him. Now, I want you all to think about that for a second. As Daniel interpreted these dreams and visions to these rulers, these rulers were hearing the very word of God spoken to them in the moment. You need to note, for the most part, they were disobedient. Even Cyrus was simply an instrument of God who never truly bowed in full soul bound to conviction of God's sovereignty. Cyrus did not bow before the one holy, living, true God, just submitting to his full sovereignty, even though God was speaking directly to him through his, his prophet, Daniel. Well, just as that history is important to these future chapters, and this narrative serves as a platform for God to display his future covenant faithfulness to the remnant of believers among the nation of Israel. We have to see what God is doing here in this transition from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7. In one sense, he had been speaking to the rulers of the world. He had been telling them, this is what will happen. But now, Daniel's going to open up and not just speak to these rulers, he's going to speak to the people of God through these visions. And to say, this is what God is promising to his people. We want to note three things this morning in our main points. Number one, Recognize a transition from historic narrative to apocalyptic presentation. 
recognize a transition from historic narrative to apocalyptic presentation. If you don't really know how to spell the word apocalyptic, it's okay. Uh, A-P-O-C-A-L-Y-P-T-I-C, but you can get it later. The first six chapters recounted the lives of Daniel and his friends. See this transition in historic narrative. It's how they arrived in Babylon, what happened after they arrived in Babylon, how God protected them in Babylon, and how God directed them in Babylon. All four of these things were happening in major emphasis. Now, there's all kinds of details to fill that in, and we've been through most of that already. If you want to recount those details, you can listen to the previous sermons. But you have a sense here that there's this historic narrative that's been unfolded before us to see all of what God had done in the lives of Daniel and his friends and even these pagan rulers. But also the first six chapters recounted the rise and fall of several kings and nations. Daniel and his friends and the rise and fall of several kings and nations. As we move into chapter 7, you have to remember that these prophecies are not happening in a sense so somebody in 2023 can extrapolate something weird from them. These prophecies, these things that we will read of in the coming chapters, they have a, a specific perspective to the context of what God was doing through Daniel at the time and what he was doing through Daniel at the time would give us far future understanding. But that far future understanding has to be understood properly in the context of the writing of Daniel. To pull all of these wild imaginative things out of context and to try to place them somewhere else is just plain dangerous. And we've seen that in the last 50 to 100 years as certain forms of dispensationalism have taken the ideology of Daniel and Revelation and given all kind of fanciful stories. Many of you know of books by some of these authors like Tim LaHaye that have really only conjured up the imagination and brought fake ideology of the end times to many churches across the nation and even the world. This historic narrative recalls for us that God is doing something in and among the kingdoms of the world. And he sets the prophecy up by telling us of the historic narrative. Now, he doesn't give us every single detail of every kingdom and every king, but he gives us the information we need to understand how God is set, setting something up for his people. Even though some details are left out in the historic narrative, you and I have to recognize the leaving out of some details does not mean those kingdoms, those nations have not been properly told to us in the broad context of who they are and what they are. But not only do we think about the first six chapters we have to think about the final six. The final six chapters declare God's far 
reaching sovereignty. There's been a declaration of his sovereignty already made in the first six chapters. But now we're going to read of his far-reaching sovereignty in a way that we had not seen it before. What was mentioned of the eternal kingdom in the first six chapters through prophecy is now going to be somewhat uh, revealed and explored to us in a way that helps God's people. The first way that this is done is the declaration is made by God's proven servant. think for a moment about the importance of the connection between the first six and the seventh, the second six chapters to recognize God has set up for us Daniel, his servant, to show him in a way that when we read his prophecies, we will know this came from a man of God. The stories of, of Daniel and his friends, this history, is not just so that we can think, wow, Daniel in the lion's den, that's cool. No, it, it's for us to see that God does actually work in his people's lives. God, God does actually uh, encourage them and lead them and cause them to walk in steadfastness to his truth. Daniel was a steadfast man in the truth of God. It makes sense now that when you think about it, if you just had somebody read to you out of Daniel chapter 7 what I read to you with no context about all these fanciful creatures, and this person said, I just want to let you know this is from God, what would you think? You didn't really know the person. They just walked up to you and started saying these things. What would you think? Be honest. You'd think they're nuts. God has set this prophecy up that's coming to us by giving us the historic narrative and saying, I sent my man. I've proven to you he is my man. And I've shown myself through him. Now hear what I have to say, church of God, through my servant. So the declaration is made by God's proven servant. Whatever we'll read in these last six chapters, we have to remember that and keep that in our mind. Secondly, under this point, the declaration is made through God's chosen symbolic language. Now we're going to deal with this a little more as we move along. But we do need to first note that Daniel is using some symbolic language here. Um, it is important for us to understand there is a literal context to our, our Bible, the Word of God itself. But if you read the Word of God not recognizing the different types of writing or literature that are involved in the Scripture you will become confused very quickly. So if you read portions of God's word like this kind of prophetic, apocalyptic language and literature, or the book of Revelation, and you read it with a hard wooden literalism, 
you will put yourself in a strange place in one sense and may put yourself in despair in another sense because you'll always be looking for this strange spoken thing in the word of God to happen in reality. So we have to recognize first or secondly under this point that there is symbolic language. Well, our second transition, main point number two, recognize a transition from the nations to the church. Recognize a transition from the nations to the church. We're recognizing a transition from the historical narrative to the apocalyptic writing, and now we're recognizing a transition from the nations to the church. Previous chapters focused Daniel on proclamation to rulers of the nation. It's God's sovereignty over nations and rulers, God's judgment upon nations and rulers. When you read that historic narrative, you see that God is speaking through Daniel to tell these rulers and these nations, God is over you whether you admit it or not. God will bring his judgment upon you whether you like it or not. You have no say in what God will do. Well, just as that's in the previous chapters, the future chapters focused Daniel on proclamation to the remnant in the nations. The first proclamation is to the rulers of the nations, the second is to the remnant in the nations. John Calvin said, Here Daniel begins to offer instruction peculiar to the church. Peculiar to the church. Another writer says, Let it be repeated. This is not an official Babylonian document, speaking of Daniel's writing or his prophecy. He says, but it is a prophecy written for the church of God. Now, in one sense, we have to recognize that and say, okay, that really does put me in a place to say, I need this information about lions with wings and leopards with wings and multiple heads and a beast that's unidentifiable except for the fact it just terrified Daniel to death. And it had horns. I must need this information. But it also reminds us that the information we will gain may not always be to our liking, especially as humans. Daniel wants to focus here moving forward so that the people of God will be comforted. This is how God is using his servant. Well, number three this morning. Recognize a transition from near future promises to far future promises. Now, this point we're going to be unfolding as weeks go along. But just by way of introduction, you need to think about some of these things. You need to recognize we have a transition from chapter 6 into chapter 7 from near future promises 
to far future promises. True enough, some of the far future was already mentioned in the six chapters in the historic narrative. But now more of that far future will be unfolded, and it's unfolded in the context for the people of God. Why? Because pagan rulers and pagan people, they were not going to get nor understand God's promises to his people. They were unconverted. Daniel had been a foreteller of future events to pagan rulers. Daniel informed the rulers of their end, Daniel informed the rulers of their future earthly kingdoms and habitations. This is how far you'll go. I mean, you have to realize with the, the statue of chapter 2, you have to recognize God is giving through Daniel these men, these rulers, an idea of their future habitations. Your kingdom will go this far and no more. Daniel even gave them, or Daniel informed them briefly of a future eternal kingdom. And Daniel informed the rulers, but they did not understand. They didn't understand. Now pause for a minute and think about that. What is the sadness when God's word is brought before people they don't see it rightly. The scales are on their eyes. They push against it, walk away from it, or even outright reject it. When you read that historic narrative of the first six chapters, recognize, for the most part, you're watching a lot of people say, I've already got my God. I don't need yours, Daniel. And that's the world we live in today, isn't it? People are still saying that. I have my God. I don't need yours, Daniel. Well, also under this third heading, Daniel became an apocalyptic messenger to the people of God. Daniel became an apocalyptic messenger to the people of God. I hope you'll see these last six chapters as I give this emphasis of the importance to the church, to the people of God, the remnant. We're going to speak about an apocalyptic messenger or apocalyptic writing. We have to answer the question, well, what is it? Well, I thought there was two helpful definitions that I saw um, that kind of give you a, an entrance into thinking about these things. One writer said in short form, speaking of apocalyptic writing, it is a distinct type of Jewish literature written to encourage faithful people in times of persecution. It is a distinct type of Jewish literature written to encourage faithful people in times of persecution. Another writer says, Biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world. And it does so with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion 
of human history. I thought these two definitions were helpful because it gives us a sense not to look at apocalyptic literature merely as something that's odd, strange, or fanciful and to get caught up just in the mere ideology of some strange imagery. It's strange enough, true. It's odd enough, true. But it has a purpose. This one writer says it seeks to enlighten and encourage. Who? A people despised and cast off by the world. And how does it do it? It gives those people a vision of the one God who will come to impose his kingdom, a righteous kingdom, on the wreckage of rebellion, the rebellion of human history. Now, that last phrase is kind of hard because that's saying a lot about the whole of the world, right? Have you ever thought about what's happening in our world and thinking of it in the context as a rebellious generation, but it's actually the wreckage of human history? It brings us to a sense to remind ourselves of how awful the fall really was. It reminds us of God's common grace that we get, still get to enjoy some beauty. And yet we enjoy that beauty in the midst of the wreckage of human history. Every nation on the earth right now has the same problem that every nation on the earth has ever had. They continue to try to figure out everything by their own will, their own power, and their own way. And they continue to wreck it. There has been no perfect earthly kingdom after the fall. Not even the nation of Israel. Even the ones who were given all of the provision to be God's people among all of the nations of the world, they still wrecked it, didn't they? So what will be our encouragement Well, we'll see it in these three steps. Daniel informed God's people of future events. Now, I'm going to briefly speak of this just for a moment, just so you get an idea of some of this apocalyptic language. These future events deal with four nations in the first eight verses of chapter 7. This also goes back to the same nations that we spoke of in chapter 2. The lion with eagle's wings is Babylon. The bear is Medo-Persia. We talked about the connectiveness of uh, the nation of Media and Persia. And we went through some of the history of that even in the Bible study. The leopard with wings is Greece. The terrifying, dreadful, and strong beast is Rome. So Daniel's going to inform God's people of these future events in these nations. And Daniel informed God's people of future hope. Now I want you to think, when when you read in verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, go back for a minute and recognize 
that while uh, Daniel is having to deal with Belshazzar, he's already had this vision. And so this vision, this understanding of what God is going to do is the same hope that Daniel had for himself in dealing with what was to come in Belshazzar and then Cyrus. If this future hope that Daniel saw in these visions was a help to him in walking in a pagan world, it should be a help to us. It should be a help to us. So the future hope had already served Daniel in his difficulties, and the future hope would serve and will serve God's people as well. Lastly, under this third point, Daniel informed God's people of future surety. He informed God's people of future events, of future hope, and of future surety. The surety here is something specific. It's more than just a hope. Hope has to have something that it's built on that's very foundational. And that's why we need the surety. Daniel previously declared God's eternal kingdom to the rulers. If you go back through the first six chapters, you'll see it in several places. One particularly, chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. But here we have to recognize in this transition that Daniel prophetically declared the coming of the greatest ruler. The greatest ruler. When you read in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, after the nations have been explained, Daniel has already talked about the reign of the Ancient of Days. He talks about the throne, the purity of the Ancient of Days. And then in verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The future surety is the coming of the Messiah. It's the identification that this coming Messiah is the Son of Man. What does Jesus say of himself? That he is the son of man. He's recognized as such in the new covenant context. Daniel was opening up a window to the people of God in his day that the Messiah is coming. And he is reminding the people of God today to look back at that window and remember Not only was he promised, but he has been revealed. He came and he is coming again. This is the kind of surety that the people of God need when they're living in pagan nations. Pagan nations that have taken them over. Pagan nations that have exiled them. Pagan nations that continually want to 
oppress the people of God and to keep them from worshiping him and him alone. The people of God need this surety. They need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ is on his throne. He is the reigning king. That there is no king like him and no king will replace him. They need to be reminded that this king is the promised king. Spoken of by God the Father himself through his servant. Some 600 years before the king would even come the first time. And when he came, his coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection, first of all, turned Rome upside down. But it turned the whole of the world on its head. When you've come today to worship, you have to remember who you're worshiping. The promised king, the one who came and is coming again. I want to leave you with three observations this morning. Number one, God provides appropriate purpose in all of Scripture. God provides appropriate purpose in all of Scripture. Even though some things may be confusing, even though some things may be difficult to understand, there's always a purpose. There's a purpose in all of Scripture, even apocalyptic literature. Even if we don't understand every single detail, even if we think more specifically about some details than we should, there's a greater purpose at hand Number one, in all of Scripture. And number two, even in prophetic Scripture. Secondly, God provides ultimate comfort in all of Scripture. God provides appropriate purpose in all of Scripture, and God provides ultimate comfort in all of Scripture. I hope as we go through these last chapters that you will see God is truly desiring and designing to comfort his people. A nation that has been literally whittled down to almost nothing. Cyrus will allow them to return, but they will never be what they once were. Rome will eventually trample that nation down by destroying its temple. And yet for those who have an understanding of the Messiah, they will march on in the light of God's truth and they will be comforted. Isn't it good to know in the world we live in today, even though President Putin and President <laughs> Xi and all these other dictators out there are doing crazy and strange things, Iran's had a, several leaders that have been assassinated recently. Um, there's all kind of just wild and crazy things happening all over the world. Even in our own nation, we're confused as to how in the world our own president even functions day to day. I don't mean that ugly. I'm just being honest. We're confused. We don't get it. 
isn't good to know that all of my comfort is not wrapped up in this one earthly nation called America? That my comfort is not wrapped up in what China will do? All of my comfort comes from the purpose of God that he has a people. He will not only order them and save them, but he will keep them and he has promised to comfort them as he is the God of all comfort. Without him, there is no comfort. Thirdly and lastly, God provides infinite hope in all of Scripture. When you have the right surety, you can have the right hope. And when our surety is the Messiah who came and who is coming again, then we now can have a hope that no one else really understands unless they know that Messiah. And because we have repented and believed in him alone to save us from the debt and guilt of our sin, and we believe that his work has been applied to our souls by the very Holy Spirit of God, we can have real genuine hope. Hope in something that's sure and true and honest and real. Even if the worst of things happens in this nation, even if we were taken over by another country. Israel was. They were completely ransacked, taken over, and taken out of their realm of a little Mediterranean area, and they were exiled thousands of miles away. Left with nothing, hardly at all, of a nation. And yet they were having to learn that their comfort was not in that physical nation. Their comfort was in the promise of the Messiah who one day he would reconcile all things to himself and bring about his eternal kingdom in its fullness. That's a real hope. And it's based on the surety of the Messiah. So as we go through these prophecies, I hope you will keep these things in mind and not get just simply tangled up in the apocalyptic language. I even say this to you to recognize there are times when I study these things, I can get caught up in one phrase and chasing it all kinds of different places. And after I've chased it all kinds of different places, I have to sit back and say, why did I do that? Because it didn't really help me in the final understanding. So if you don't understand one of these phrases that is strange or one of these ideas that's strange, keep the big picture in mind. That God has a desire to bring about his purpose, to bring about the comfort and the hope of his people. And he will always, always keep his people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to give us this time in your word. We ask now that you use the teaching of this word according to your will alone and nothing else. That by your spirit you will deal with our souls as you have been doing while it has been preached. And we pray that it will be carried on through the rest of this day for however long you desire. We are weak people in need of your truth. We ask that your spirit illumine the truth to us.
as we come to the time of the table. Lord, may we be thoughtful. May we be thoughtful of confessing our sin rightly. Coming before you, not thinking of our own righteousness, but recognizing we have none. Confessing our need for the imputed righteousness of Christ. Please, Lord, deal with our souls that we would long to strive against our sin and hate it as you do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.